Hello and welcome to the More Than Milk podcast, episode five. I'm your host, Heidi Kim, and I wanted to talk a little bit about when to seek help with breastfeeding. A lot of us are really, really scared to seek help here in the United States, and a lot of times um, things can appear to be going wrong when they're really going normal, and a lot of times things can be uh, going wrong when they don't appear to be. So I think it's a really important skill to understand when it is that you might want to seek help and also to discuss what kind of help you might need because it might change depending on your personal situation. Um, I talked a little bit about this when I did the preparing to breastfeed section of the podcast, which I will uh, try to remember. I believe that was episode two. Um, but this is going to be generally, so not just in the first two weeks. Typically, if you do need to seek help with breastfeeding, it's in the first few days or weeks. Um, but things can come up throughout your breastfeeding experiences as well. So let's talk a little bit about what's normal for newborn behavior and when you might want to seek help. I do want to say for those of you who are pregnant and thinking about um, breastfeeding, that it would really, really help probably to be at a baby-friendly hospital if you're planning to give birth at a hospital. There are also birth centers that are baby-friendly. The birth center that I gave birth to my older daughter at is a baby-friendly birth center. Um, And generally, home birth midwives are pretty familiar with breastfeeding as well, but those are the kinds of questions you want to ask if you're planning a home birth too. So knowing that ahead of time can really, really help. And I think that if you are going to be at the hospital, ask for help right away because a lot of times um, their lactation team is not there all day long. So say you have a baby on like a Friday night, you might not get to see a lactation consultant your entire visit if they don't have people there during the weekend. So ask right away. And I think even if things are going right, it's a good idea if you have that resource available to you anyways, to ask for help at the hospital if you're going to be giving birth at a hospital. So let's talk about what is normal uh, for a newborn and what you might need further assistance with if you're having struggles. People get very hung up on the numbers of times babies are eating and how long babies eat. You'll hear anything from they should eat every two hours to they should eat every three hours to they should be eating five minutes on one side to they should be eating 20 minutes on both sides. And I just want to say those numbers don't mean much in terms of the spacing out. It's very, very common, for example, for children to cluster feed, especially in the evening time. And it can be really stressful, I think, for moms to have a baby that has just fed and then an hour later is hungry again. And then you think, oh my gosh, I don't have enough milk. You probably do have enough milk. The majority of us do have enough milk. Um, And that's not necessarily indicative of a problem. But babies generally eat about 8 to 12 times in 24 hours in their newborn Days. And honestly, even onward, my child is six months old, almost six months old, and she nurses all the time. She still is nursing pretty constantly. Um, 
So if you have a child that's not nursing at least eight times in those first few days, that's something to think about. The first day, they might eat a little bit less. They tend to eat quite a bit in the first couple of hours where they're born. And then they're sleepy because birth is a hard hard thing to do, and so they don't necessarily eat as much. Um, understanding how big their stomachs are helps a lot. In the first day, their stomach is about the size of a marble and can only take in just a couple, like a teaspoon really, um, of colostrum, which is perfect because that's how much... Uh, colostrum you typically make as well per feeding. Um, Babies don't need very much. And so a lot of times, if there's a need for supplementation, for example, moms will go to pump and they pump colostrum and hardly anything will come out. It'll be tiny little drops and it can be discouraging. But that's exactly what you would expect for the first few days. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, babies lose weight. Even formula-fed babies lose weight. The vast majority of babies are going to lose some weight in the first day or two or three. Um, The biggest thing is you want that weight loss to be within the range of normal. So the range of normal is less than 10% weight loss. It is important, though, to note if you had IV fluids during labor, it might be more than 10%. There's a lot of people that are saying now we should talk about the 24-hour weight instead of their first weight as their first weight because 24 hours later, all those fluids have kind of gotten out of their system if you did have fluids during labor, um, especially if you had like an induction or a an epidural. A lot of times with epidurals, they'll give you what's called a bolus of fluid where it's a lot of fluid, not just kind of continued fluid throughout. So that's something to think about as well. Fluid can cause other issues. You can have a lot of engorgement if you have fluid um, and your breasts can feel kind of pretty sore, especially day three or four if you've had a lot of fluid. So Those are just things to go ahead and keep in mind, but generally if baby is still losing weight, um, you're going to want to seek some help, and if by day four they're still losing, you probably want to go ahead and reach out for help. Of course, you probably don't have a scale at your house, so it's hard to know if babies are losing weight. Um, So what you do have are diapers. You want to look at the diaper output. Diaper output is not necessarily the most reliable thing once you get into older babies, uh, but in those first few days, it is pretty reliable. So you should be expecting one poopy and one wet diaper on the first day, two on the second, three on the third, meaning too poopy, too wet. And towards the end of the week, it, it kind of slows down a little bit on the poops. When I talk about a poopy diaper, I mean something the size of a quarter. So say they're pooping quite a lot, you can count it as more than one poopy diaper if it's larger than the size of a, a quarter, um, a quarter coin to get you an idea of how much poop they should be having. So my older daughter pooped every single time she ate, which is really normal for a breastfed baby. And my younger daughter does all of her pooping all at once and fills an entire diaper when she poops. It's super fun. Um, And as your milk starts to come in, that poop is going to change from what's called meconium, which is that dark, black, tarry, sticky poop, which is really hard to get off, 
to um, kind of more yellow and seedy poop. There's going to be some transition in there where it goes to kind of like a dark green and then a brighter green and then um, should be a, a mustardy yellow kind of color. A little rant about poop. There's a lot of discussion about like four milk, hind milk, that kind of thing. Generally, pediatricians say that if poop isn't bloody um, or if you're not having a lot of bright green poops, you're probably fine. One green poopy diaper here and there, it's probably not the end of the world. But that's kind of thinking more with an older baby. Um, other signs that things might be going on if your child is really, really sleepy. It's really tricky. I remember my pediatrician asking me how long my older daughter was nursing, and I would be like, oh, 20 minutes. But my older daughter was very jaundiced, and jaundice is a very common topic that comes up. A lot of babies are jaundiced. Almost every baby has some amount of jaundice, but some babies are more jaundiced than others. And breastfed babies in particular are more likely to be jaundiced. And then Roslyn also had some other indications that caused her to be more likely to be jaundiced. Um, my husband is Asian. Babies of Asian heritage are more likely to be jaundiced. And we had different blood types. I have O blood type. She has, I have O negative. She is A positive. The O to A makes it more likely that babies will have jaundice as well. So um, she was very jaundiced, and so, yes, she was at the breast maybe 20 minutes and then 20 minutes on the other side, but she was sleeping the whole time. She was just kind of like non-nutritively sucking just this kind of like nibble at the breast. She wasn't doing these big chin drops and lots of really audible swallowing, and so it was really hard to tell. So that's why I get a little nervous about the hours and time and all of that stuff because... A baby could be there constantly, like Roslyn was, or like Irene was, which I talked about when I did the episode on tongue tie. Um, they could be there for a very, very long time, but aren't necessarily effectively transferring milk. So that is something to keep in mind as well. You want to be hearing audible swallowing. On the other side, they could be there for a very short time and be very, very efficient. As babies get older, they get more efficient, and a lot of times around the three-month mark, moms start to get really nervous, thinking that babies aren't eating enough because all of a sudden they're going from these long feeds to quite short, efficient feeds. But if you do a transfer weight, you might find that babies transfer quite a bit. For example, I was at a breastfeeding group the other day, and I did a transfer weight with my youngest daughter and realized that in two minutes, she was transferring three ounces on one side. Three ounces is a really great transfer. I talked a little bit about how much a breastfed baby should be taking in in episode four when I talked about pumping. Generally, breastfed babies, once they're a month old, take in one ounce to 1.5 ounces per hour. So three ounces in a couple of minutes was a really good transfer weight for my, my baby. And if I hadn't weighed her, I wouldn't have known. So talking about transfer weights, what that is is where you weigh the baby, feed the baby, and then weigh the baby again. You want to make sure that if you're doing this, that this is something that's happening, one, on the same scale, and two, you want a very sensitive scale, like a lactation scale, which is going to be uh, much better at telling you how many ounces they're taking in 
versus the kind of scale that you can buy like online on Amazon and just have around your house. Those scales are okay for daily weights, but not necessarily for a transfer weight to get a good idea of how much baby is taking in or not taking in. So that is definitely something to keep in mind. Most of us won't have to do transfer weights, but if you do need to seek help, that is one thing to be aware of. Especially because a lot of times the first line of defense when you have breastfeeding problems is your pediatrician. Sometimes it's nurses or a neonatologist if you're still in the hospital or with a NICU. But most of the time the first person to catch that there might be an issue in terms of baby is a pediatrician. And not all pediatricians are familiar with breastfeeding. I was listening to an interview with Dr. Jack Newman on a different podcast over at All About Breastfeeding, which is a podcast made by Lori Jill Eisenstadt, who is an IBCLC here in Phoenix. She was interviewing Dr. Jack Newman, who is incredible. He's a doctor based out of Canada, but he did lots of work in South Africa. And he was a pediatrician when he was living in South Africa and learned so much about breastfeeding because in South Africa, if babies aren't breastfed, oftentimes it's the difference between life and death because of the access to clean water and the cost of formula there. So he learned a lot. But what he said in the interview is that when he was in medical school learning to become a pediatrician, they just got a couple of hours through the entire years of medical school on lactation. And what they learned really was basically breast is best. We want to encourage moms to breastfeed. Now, if you need to introduce formula, here's how you do it and the things you need to know about formula, which makes sense um, because doctors have a lot of things to learn. There's so much that they need to know about. And so it's hard for them to be kind of experts in the field of lactation. I was really fortunate with my daughters that my pediatrician was very supportive of breastfeeding and was pretty gung-ho about promoting me to get help when I needed help. Um, a lot of times what happens is babies lose weight, doctors get nervous, which rightfully they should, and their response is, well, we have to feed the baby, so here's some bottles and some formula, and that's where it ends. Rule one is feed the baby. You do need to make sure that your baby is eating. And so if you are having challenges with weight gain and uh, breastfeeding, you need to figure out a way for that baby to eat effectively. But generally, if you are at the pediatrician, they tend to be a little bit more at ease with you if they find out that you're working with a lactation consultant. So for example, when I had my younger daughter and she was really severely tongue-tied. Fortunately, she didn't have trouble with weight gain. Um, but he was able to say, okay, well, you're working with a lactation consultant. So if you're going to that pediatrician appointment and you're having issues, first line of defense at that point is, okay, let's go see a lactation consultant right now. Don't delay. Let's go right now. Um, other indications that there might be a problem besides a really sleepy baby, a really jaundiced baby, or a baby that's losing weight are on mom's side. Breastfeeding should not be painful. I talked about this a little bit in the tongue tie episode. Um, it might be uncomfortable. Your nipples aren't used to working that way. And a lot of women do feel pain. So saying breastfeeding shouldn't be painful 
some moms get very upset hearing that because they're like, it was painful for me. It should be painful. Um, it might be uncomfortable the first few days, especially while you're waiting for your milk to come in, but you should not be having toe curling pain. You should not be upset about the idea of having to feed your child. Um, you should not be having nipple damage. There shouldn't be bleeding, cracking, blistering, bruising. Any of that is indications that it's a problem. Typically, if there is pain associated with breastfeeding, it's in the first few minutes before letdown happens, and it tends to ease. If you're hurting throughout the entire feeding, or you're hurting in between feedings, or there's any kind of nipple damage, seek help. A lot of times moms are like, well, my baby is transferring weight fine, and I'm surviving so we can do it. But it doesn't have to be like that. You're an important part of this equation too. And if you're experiencing a lot of pain, especially if there's damage, you're putting yourself at higher risk of things like thrush and mastitis, which can compromise supply and can cause problems in the future. Also, if you're having issues where it's just so emotionally draining for you to nurse your baby because of the pain, the likelihood of you continuing is less. And so don't continue to suffer. You're an important part of this equation too. And if you're having pain, that's an indication to seek help. So what kind of help should you be seeking? Really, it depends on the severity of the situation. When Rosalind was jaundiced, the kind of help that I needed was actually pretty fine with just talking to other women who have breastfed and asking for help from them and figuring out how to get her to wake up enough to eat. We were covering her in wet washcloths and stripping her down to her diaper, um, turning on the lights. It was really difficult to get her to wake up enough to eat. And tricking her into um, swallowing by talking to a couple of my friends about what they did with their child. With Irene, on the other hand, when her tongue tie was so severe, it was the kind of thing that we needed to see a lactation consultant for. So there are support groups that are available. La Leche League, if you're in the United States, Breastfeeding USA. And typically there are breastfeeding support groups at birth centers, Hospitals, a lot of local um, breastfeeding advocates will have breastfeeding support groups. There's a lot of them available to you. So definitely be on the lookout for those. Um, but sometimes, especially with a newborn, a week from now or a month from now when La Leche League meets is not soon enough and you need help right now. And that's the time to call a lactation consultant. A lot of lactation consultants will talk to you over the phone before they'll meet with you for free. A lot of times they'll they'll talk to you to try to assess whether or not you actually need an assessment. So it's not a failure <laughs> to call and ask. Um, and a lactation consultant can do things like the transfer weight, which we talked about. So those are things to keep in mind. There are different kinds of lactation consultants as well. It's a very common thing that I see for women to say, well, my lactation consultant said this. Um, this seems to be super common with things like nipple shields. Um, and you know, a lot of times they'll say, my baby's not tongue-tied because the doctor or the lactation consultant said that she wasn't. Or there's all kinds of things that can come up. 
pretty much anyone can call themselves a lactation consultant. There are different um, kind of titles depending on what their training is, and there's constantly new ones popping up. Uh, common ones are CLC, CLE, um, and those, there are some really, really great people that have those certifications, and they might know a lot about breastfeeding. For example, when I did my doula training, I did one of those similar trainings uh, through WIC, and I would say that I probably know an awful lot about breastfeeding, but I am not an international board certified lactation consultant at least not at this point. And there are times when I interact with mothers and I'm like, this is beyond what I know and this is beyond what I can help you with. And that's when you want to seek an international board certified lactation consultant. So let's talk about some of these other lactation trainings. Um, a lot of times hospitals will have like lactation nurses, especially if they're working towards becoming uh, baby-friendly hospitals. Um, typically, those trainings are like a weekend long, or in my case, it was a week long course. Sometimes the trainings are online. And what it'll tell you is basic information about breastfeeding and then also how to spot a problem and get an idea of what the problem is. Doesn't necessarily give you the best resources on what to do about that problem. So, for example, I know what a good latch looks like and how to position a child, but an international board certified lactation consultant might be able to do a better job of fixing a bad latch. And so, I can probably see as your doula, hey, you need help and refer you out to an IBCLC. An IBCLC spends hours, sometimes a thousand hours, um, doing contact mother to baby working with moms on breastfeeding before they can become an IBCLC. They also have the CLC training that we just talked about. They have to sit for an all day exam to uh, get certified and they have to resit for that exam every few years. And they have to do continuing education, um, every few years as well. And they have to have 14 college courses in order to be considered an international board certified lactation consultant. They are much more qualified than a lot of these other people. So if you're really having a high need situation um, and what you're being told by say a lactation nurse is not helpful, ask for the international board certified lactation consultant. So there's a little rant about that. I don't think that everyone needs an IBCLC. A lot of us don't. But if the help that you're getting is not adequate, look for a higher level help is what I'm saying. Um, some other issues that may come up as, child, as the child gets older, it's really common for things like thrush, mastitis, clogged ducts, uh, nipple damage to suddenly become an issue. Those kinds of things are the kinds of things that you might need to seek help for. You might not need an IBCLC 
or you might. I know that I just started solid foods and we're not really having problems, but I definitely have used the help of breastfeeding support groups to kind of figure out what that process is going to look like. If you need help with weaning, this is something that people don't think about. Um, Sometimes they're really afraid that going to a support group is not going to be supportive of weaning or talking to a lactation consultant is not going to be supportive of weaning. I know that was my concern when I was wanting to wean Rosalind at 21 months. I was scared to call an IBCLC because I thought what they would tell me was, well, don't wean. Um, And in her case, I actually did need to wean because I wanted to get pregnant again and I myself personally have been told by multiple IBCLCs and midwives, at least at the time, not to breastfeed while pregnant. Most people can breastfeed while pregnant. Usually if you're approved for sexual activity, you're approved to breastfeed while pregnant. But in our case, I did want to wean and I felt like I was kind of out there all on my own trying to figure this out. Other situations where you might want to seek the help of an international board certified lactation consultant or support, um, especially prenatally, are things like if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, that can cause challenges or other fertility issues. Those can cause challenges with breastfeeding. Um, If you have issues with your thyroid, that can cause challenges with breastfeeding. This is an issue for me that shows up only in pregnancy, but it's something that I needed to be aware of. If you've previously had trouble nursing another child, you might want to seek help. If you have flat or inverted nipples, you might want to seek help. A little side about flat and inverted nipples, a lot of times, especially in the hospital, the solution seems to be, here, let me throw a nipple shield at you. Um, Nipple shields can be really, really great and can be a really great tool, and without them, a lot of women can couldn't breastfeed, but you can nurse without nipple shields, even with flatter inverted nipples. I've seen moms do it. So that could be a whole separate podcast. Um, but it's just something to keep in mind that you want to be, um, if you're using a shield, you want to be getting follow-up and, um, that might be something that you want to ask about. If you've had previous breast surgery, you might want to be talking to an IBCLC, If you're using any kind of tool, I think you should be working with an IBCLC or working with at least someone, maybe even just a support group. But if you're using a nipple shield, if you're needing to pump, if you're introducing bottles, if there's some other form of supplementation such as cup feeding, uh, syringe finger feeding, supplemental nursing systems, you want to be making sure that you're getting follow-up and have a good idea of what it is that's going on because Once you introduce a new tool, it can kind of um, mess up the supply and demand if you're not careful. So seeking help is very, very good in that kind of situation. And then another situation where you might want to seek help, and this might be something you want to do before you have your baby, is if you are planning to nurse without giving birth. Um, There are parents who nurse without giving birth. I donate to a adoptive mom, for example. I know quite a lot of surrogates that have pumped for their surrogate child um, for intended parents. And I know a lot of intended parents 
who have induced lactation. So those kinds of things are really important to know. A really good resource for that is the Breastfeeding Outside the Box podcast, which I've talked about a hundred times because I love it and I'm addicted to it. Um, she also wrote a book called Breastfeeding Without Birthing, which I love. Um, so those kinds of things are things that you might need help with. And knowing that that's coming up, it might be a good idea. Another uh, reason you might want to seek help, if you're past day uh, four and your milk hasn't come in, you might want to seek help for that. If you have gestational diabetes, for example, you're at higher risk of uh, what's called delayed lactogenesis, which means your milk might take a little bit longer to come in. There are other reasons besides diabetes that might make your milk take a little bit longer to come in, but that's something to be aware of. If you have gestational diabetes, ideally prenatally, that's something to be aware of and to be talking to a lactation consultant about. Um, But there are other reasons why your milk might not have come in by day four or so, maybe maybe day five. Um, and if it hasn't, that's a good reason to seek help as well. I'm sure that there are many, many other reasons. Oh, here's one that I could have used, and I wish I could go back in time and tell myself. Um, if you're lactating, but you are not breastfeeding, you might want to seek help about what to do about that. So an example of that that I just used a moment ago would be surrogacy. Or if you are a birth mom in an adoptive situation, um, you might have your milk come in and not be breastfeeding. Another example of that might be where you've decided not to breastfeed. Again, seek help in that situation. Um, And in my particular case, we lost our baby. Um, Once you are over, sometimes I've heard it happen as early as 16 weeks, but generally once you're over 20 weeks gestation, if you have a stillbirth, um, your milk is still going to come in. And that can be a very, very painful experience. And it can be one that can feel, you can feel completely alone. And it was one that happened with me. And I wish that I had an IBCLC to work with me to give me an idea of how to cope with that, what to do with that milk. Um, and also how to dry it up in a way that was comfortable, that would have prevented, uh, some of the awful engorgement and plug ducts that I experienced. So, um, that's another reason why you might want to seek help and yeah, (laughs) that's another episode in and of itself, but it is something that a lot of people don't think to seek help about if they're lactating but not breastfeeding. And similarly, if you're breastfeeding but not lactating, which we talked about as well, um, you definitely want to be talking with an IBCLC about that as well. So I hope that this episode was kind of helpful, even if it was a little bit... um, I don't know, nitty gritty. It's really difficult because it's an individual thing. What I would say is if your doctor or nurse or whoever is talking to you about supplementation, there are opportunities to do that in a way that is more breastfeeding friendly and there are ways to do it. And the second someone starts talking about supplementation, I would start talking about seeing an IBCLC. Sometimes supplementation is necessary, but the way that you do it If you want to continue breastfeeding onward, you're going to want to seek the help of a professional. 
So I hope that this episode was helpful. Um, if you want to, you can hit the subscribe button over on iTunes and then you'll get notifications when we come up. I also really want to thank everyone who has supported the podcast over on patreon.com slash more than milk. If you go over to the podcast page on Patreon, uh, you can leave a comment there and I will read it on the air. A couple of you have done that. You can also write a review for us in iTunes, which helps people find the show. Um, and if you want to participate in kind of the more than milk community, um, we are doing that over at Facebook. So you can ask to join that group as well. The more than milk group over on Facebook as well. So Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye, guys.